The Life of George Whitfield will now continue from the Life of Whitfield that was written by John Gillies, which was the original biography of George Whitfield in the 18th century. Being now about 21 years of age, he was sent for by Dr. Benson, Bishop of Gloucester, who told him that though he had purposed to ordain none under 23, yet he should reckon it his duty to ordain him whenever he applied, upon which at the earnest persuasion of his friends he prepared for taking orders. His behavior on this occasion was exemplary. He first studied the 39 articles that he might be satisfied of their being agreeable to the scriptures. Then he examined himself by the qualifications of a minister mentioned in the New Testament, and by the questions that he knew were to be put to him in his ordination. On the Saturday, he was much in prayer for himself and those who were to be ordained with him. On the morning of his ordination, Sunday, June 20th, 1736, he rose early and began to read with prayer Paul's epistles to Timothy, and after his ordination went to the Lord's table. The Sunday following, he preached his sermon on the necessity and benefit of a religious society to a very crowded auditory, and that same week he set out for Oxford, where he inclined to go rather than to the parish which the bishop would have given him, because it was a place where he might best prosecute his studies, and where he hoped his labors might be most useful. Soon after this, he was invited to officiate at the chapel of the Tower of London. The first time he preached in London, August 1736, at Bishopsgate Church. Having a very young look, the people were surprised at his appearance, and seemed to sneer as he went up to the pulpit. But they had not heard him long when their content was turned into esteem and their smiles into great attention. He continued at the tower two months, preaching, catechizing, and visiting the soldiers, and several serious young men came to hear his morning discourses on the Lord's Day. In the meantime, the letters which the Reverends Wesley and Ingham wrote home from Georgia made him long to go and preach the gospel in those parts, yet he waited till Providence should make his way more clear and returned to Oxford. He found himself very happy in his former employments and had much pleasure in reading Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible and in the company of some religious young men who met together in his chamber every day. In November... 1736. He was again called from Oxford to minister at Dummer in Hampshire. This is a new sphere of action among poor illiterate people, but he was soon reconciled to it and thought he reaped no small profit by conversing with them. Nevertheless, he continued his studies with unwearied application, dividing the day into three parts, eight hours for sleep and meals, eight for public prayers, catechizing and visiting, and eight for study and retirement. During his stay here, he was invited to a very profitable curacy in London, but did not accept it, as he was still intent upon going abroad. Providence at length seemed to open a door to him, for he received letters containing what he thought to be an invitation to go to Georgia from Mr. John Wesley, whose brother came over about this time to procure more laborers. It is easy to judge how readily this proposal would be embraced, and now he thought himself clearly called many things concurring to make a stay at home less necessary. He set his affairs in order, and on January 1737 went to take leave of his friends in Gloucester and Bristol. At Gloucester, the congregations when he preached were very large and very serious. At Bristol, 
Many persons were forced to return from the churches where he was invited to preach for lack of room. He went also to Bath where he was kindly received and preached twice. But he did not stay long at any of these places, being obliged to go to Oxford about the latter end of February, from whence he came up to London to wait upon General Oglethorpe and the trustees for Georgia. He was soon introduced to the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London, who both approved of his going abroad. While he continued at London waiting for General Oglethorpe, he preached more frequently than he had done before, and great numbers of people flocked to hear him. But finding that the general was not likely to sell for some time, and being under particular obligations to the Reverend Mr. Samson Harris, minister at Stonehouse in Gloucestershire, he went, at his request, to supply his charge till he should dispatch some affairs in London. There he was very happy in his public ministrations, but especially in his retirements, which he used afterwards to reflect upon with great satisfaction. He said some hung upon the rails, others climbed up the leads of the church, and altogether made the church itself so hot with their breath that the steam would fall from the pillars like drops of rain. On Mr. Harris's return, he left Stonehouse, and upon repeated invitations went a second time to Bristol, where he preached, as usual, about five times a week. Here the multitudes of his hearers still increased. He was attended by persons of all ranks and denominations. Private religious societies were erected. A collection for the poor prisoners in Newgate was made twice or thrice a week, and large encouragement was offered to him if he would not go abroad. During his stay at Bristol, which was from the end of May to the 21st of June, he paid a second short visit to Bath, where the people crowded, and were seriously affected as at Bristol with no less than 160 pounds collected for the poor of Georgia. June 21st, he preached his farewell sermon at Bristol, and towards the end of the discourse, when he came to tell them it might be they would see him no more. The whole congregation was exceedingly affected. High and low, young and old, burst into a flood of tears. Multitudes after sermon followed him home weeping, and the next day he was employed from seven in the morning till midnight in talking and giving advice to those who came to him about the concerns of their souls and salvation. From Bristol he went to Gloucester and preached to a very crowded auditory and after staying a few days went on to Oxford, where he had an agreeable interview with the other Methodists, and came to London about the end of August. Here he was invited to preach, and assist in administering the sacrament in a great many churches. The congregations continually increased, and generally on the Lord's Day he used to preach four times to a very large and very much affected auditory and I walked ten or twelve miles and go into the different churches. His friends began to be afraid he would hurt himself, but he used to say he found by experience the more he did, the more he might do for God. His name was now put into the newspapers, so without his consent or knowledge, as a young gentleman going volunteered to Georgia, who was to preach before the societies at their general quarterly meeting. This stirred up the people's curiosity more and more. He preached on that occasion a sermon on early piety, which was printed at the request of the societies. After this, for near three months successively, there was no end of peoples flocking to hear him, and the managers of the charity schools were continually applying to him to preach. For the benefit of the children, 
For that purpose, they procured the liberty of the churches on other days of the week besides the Lord's Day. And yet thousands went away from the largest churches not being able to get in. The congregations were all attention and seemed to hear as for eternity. He preached generally nine times a week and often administered the sacrament early on the Lord's Day morning, when you might see the streets filled with people going to church with lanterns in their hand and hear them conversing about the things of God. As his popularity increased, opposition increased proportionably. Some of the clergy became angry. Two of them sent for him and told him they would not let him preach in their pulpits anymore unless he renounced that part of the preface of his sermon on regeneration, lately published, in which he wished that his brethren would entertain their auditors oftener with discourses upon the new birth. Probably some of them were irritated the more by his free conversation with many of the serious dissenters, who invited him to their houses and repeatedly told him that if the doctrine of the new birth and justification by faith were preached powerfully in the churches, there would be few dissenters in England, nor was he without opposition even from some of his friends. But under these discouragements, he had great comfort in meeting every evening with a band of religious intimates to spend an hour in prayer for the advancement of the gospel and for all their acquaintance so far as they knew their circumstances. In this he had uncommon satisfaction once he spent a whole night with them in prayer and praise. And sometimes at midnight, after he had been quite wearied with the labors of the day, he found his strength renewed in this exercise which made him compose a sermon upon intercession. The nearer the time of his embarkation approached, the more affectionate and eager the people grew. Thousands and thousands of prayers were put up for him. They would run and stop him in the alleys of the churches and follow him with wishful looks. But above all, it was the hardest for him to part with his weeping friend at St. Dunstan's, where he helped to administer the sacrament to them after spending the night before in prayer. This parting was to him almost insupportable. In the latter end of December 1737, he embarked for Georgia. This was to him a new scene, and at first appearance a very unpromising scene. The ship was full of soldiers, and there were near twenty women among them. The captains, both of the soldiers and sailors, with the surgeon and a young cadet, gave him soon to understand that they looked upon him as an impostor, and for a while treated him as such. The first Lord's Day, one of them played on the hot boy, and nothing was to be seen but cards and little heard but cursing and blasphemy. This is a very disagreeable situation, but it was worthwhile to observe with what prudence he was helped to behave among them, and how God was pleased to bless his patient and persevering endeavors to do them good. He began with the officers in the cabin in the way of mild and gentle reproof, but this had little effect. He therefore tried what might be done between decks among the soldiers, and though the place was not very commodious, he read prayers and expounded twice a day. At first he could not see any fruit of his labor, yet it was encouraging to find it so kindly received by his new red-coat parishioners, as he calls them, many of whom submitted cheerfully to be catechized about the lessons they had heard expounded. In the situation, things continued for some time, but all this while he had no place for retirement, and there was no divine service in the great cabin, both which he greatly desired. At last he obtained his wish. One day, finding the captain of the ship a little inclined to favor him, he asked him to suffer him now and then to retire into the roundhouse where the captain slept and offered him money for the loan of it. 
The captain would not take the money, but readily granted his request. Soon afterwards, the military captain, having invited him to a dish of coffee, he took the liberty to tell him that though he was a volunteer on board, yet, as he was on board, he looked upon himself as his chaplain, and as such he thought it a little odd to pray and preach to the servants and not to the master, and added with it, that if he thought proper he would make use of a short collect now and then to him and the other gentlemen in the great cabin. After pausing a while and shaking his head, he answered, I think we may when we have nothing else to do. This awkward hint was all he got for the present, yet he was encouraged by this to hope that the desired point would soon be gained. We were detained in the downs by contrary winds for near a month. The soldiers on board became by this time more and more civilized, and the people at Deal heard him gladly. There he preached thrice at the invitation of the ministers, and often expounded in the house where he lodged. This work was very delightful to him, but he was suddenly called away by a fair wind about the end of January 1738, just after he had preached in Upperdale Church. Being returned to the ship, he began to comfort himself with some promising appearances of doing good in the great cabin. As he had no better place, he generally every night retired with his friend Mr. Habersham and his brother and two servants behind the roundhouse for prayer and other religious exercises. Sometimes he perceived Captain Whiting was hearkening within. One day, finding on the captain's pillow the independent wig, he exchanged it for a book entitled The Self-Deceiver. Next morning, the captain came smiling and inquired who made that exchange. Mr. Whitfield confessed the charge and begged his acceptance of the book, which he said he had read and liked very well. From thenceforward, a visible alteration was seen in him. The other captain also, about the same time, met him as he was coming from between decks and desired that they might have public service and expounding twice a day in the great cabin. In about a fortnight, they reached Gibraltar, where they were bound to take in some more soldiers. There, one Major Sinclair had been so kind as to provide a lodging for him, and asked who, with the other military gentlemen, even Governor Sabine and General Columbine, received him most courteously. Being apprehensive that at a public military table he might be more than hospitably entertained by way of prevention, he begged leave to remind His Excellency of an observation made in the Book of Esther on the court of the great Ahasuerus that none did compel. He took the hint and gently replied that no compulsion of any kind should be used at his table, and everything was carried on with great decorum. The officers attended at public worship with order and gravity. The ministers also behaved with great civility, and all concurred to give him invitations to preach, which he did twice or thrice in the week. And in the evenings and mornings, when not on board, he expounded, conversed, and prayed with a religious society of soldiers who had liberty from the governor to assemble at any time in the church. His evening expositions were attended not only by the soldiers, but by officers, ministers, and townspeople, and from all that could be judged. His labors were not without the divine blessing. Strange and unusual was the scene, both with respect to the place and people. The adjacent promontories and the largeness of the Rock of Gibraltar helped Whitfield to enlarge his ideas of him who in his strength sets fast the mountains and is girded about with power. Finding another society of religious soldiers there belonging to the Church of Scotland, he sent them, as well as a former, some proper books, talked with several of them, and endeavored to unite both societies together 
urging on them the necessity of a Catholic disinterested love and of joining in prayer for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. This exhortation also, by the blessing of God, had a good effect, and two or three of the latter society being drafted out of Georgia desired leave to go in the ship with George Whitfield, which was readily allowed them. For the embarkation of the soldiers, by the general's consent, he gave them a parting discourse in the church. And after embarkation, from time to time, as the weather permitted, he preached to them on board their respective ships. Colonel Cochran, who commanded, was extremely civil, and soon after their setting sail there was such a change upon Captain McKay that he desired Whitfield would not give himself the trouble of expounding and praying in the cabin and between decks, for he would order a drum to be beat morning and evening, and himself would attend with the soldiers on the deck. This produced a very agreeable alteration. They were now as regular as in a church. Mr. Whitfield preached with a captain on each side of him, and soldiers all around, and the two other ships, companies, being now in the trade winds, drew near and joined in the worship of God. The great cabin was now become a Bethel. Both captains were daily more and more affected, and a crucified Savior and the things pertaining to the kingdom of God were the usual topics of their conversation. Once after public sermon, Captain McKay desired the soldiers to stop, whilst he informed them that to his great shame he had been a notorious swearer himself, but by the instrumentality of that gentleman pointing to Mr. Whitfield, he had now left it off and exhorted them for Christ's sake, that they would go and do likewise. The children were catechized. There was a reformation throughout the whole soldiery. The women cried, What a change in our captain! The bad books and pack of cards which Mr. Whitfield exchanged for Bibles and other religious books, abundance of which were given him to disperse by the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge, were now thrown overboard, and a fever that prevailed in general through the whole ship helped to make the impression sink deeper. For many days and nights he visited between twenty and thirty sick persons, crawling between decks upon his knees, administering medicines or cordials to them, and such advices seemed suitable to their circumstances. The sailors did not escape the fever. Captain Whiting gladly went with him to visit them. One of them in particular who had been a notorious scoffer sent for him in a bitter agony, crying out upon and lamenting his wicked life. The cadet, who was a cabin passenger, being also seized, was wounded deeply, told Mr. Whitfield the history of his life, and informed Captain McKay of his desire to leave the army and to return to his original intention, having had a university education of devoting himself to the service of the Church of God. Mr. Whitfield himself was also seized, but by the blessing of God he soon recovered and was strong enough in about a week to come out to the burial of the cook of the ship, who had boasted that he would be wicked till two years before he died, and then he would be good, but he was suddenly taken ill and died in about six hours. This is the only adult except a soldier who had killed himself at Gibraltar by perpetual drinking that died out of all that were on board the ship. It was the beginning of May, when they drew near to land. After preaching his farewell sermon, he arrived at the Parsonage House in Savannah, May 7, 1738, about four months after his first embarkation at Deptford. Upon this voyage, many years after, he made the following reflection, a long, and I trust, not altogether unprofitable voyage, 
What shall I render to the Lord for all of his mercies? Besides being strengthened to go through my public work, I was enabled to write letters and compose sermons as though I had been on land. Even at this distance of time, the remembrance of the happy hours I enjoyed in religious exercises on the deck is refreshing to my soul. And though nature sometimes relented at being taken from my friends, and the little unusual inconveniences of a sea life, yet a consciousness that I had in view of the glory of God and the good of souls from time to time afforded me unspeakable satisfaction. One Mr. Delamote, who had gone volunteer with Mr. John Wesley and was left behind by him as a schoolmaster at Savannah, received Mr. Whitfield at the parsonage house, which he found much better than expected. Here are some serious persons. The fruits of Mr. Wesley's ministry soon came to see him. On a morrow he read prayers and expounded in the courthouse and waited upon the magistrates. But being taken ill, he was confined for above a week with a fever, an egg. When he was recovered and able to look about him, he found everything bore the aspect of an infant colony, and what was more discouraging still, he saw it was likely to continue so by the very nature of its constitution. The people, he says, were denied the use both of Roman slaves. The lands were allotted them according to a particular plan, whether good or bad, and a female heir is prohibited from inheriting, so that in reality... To place people there on such a footing was little better than to tie their legs and bid them walk. The scheme was well meant at home, but as too many years' experience evidently proved, was absolutely impracticable in so hot a country abroad. However, that rendered what I had bought over from my friends more acceptable to the poor inhabitants and gave me an ocular demonstration, which was what I wanted. When the hint was given of the great necessity and promising utility of a future orphan house, which I now determined, by the divine assistance to set about in earnest. The Salzburgers at Ebenezer, I found, had one, and having heard of what Professor Frank had done in that way in Germany, I confidently hoped that something of the like nature might be owned and succeeded in Georgia. Many poor orphans were there already, and the number was likely soon to increase. As opportunity offered, I visited Frederica and the adjacent villages, and often admired, considering the circumstances and disposition of the first settlers, that so much was really done. The settlers were chiefly broken and decayed tradesmen from London and other parts of England, and several Scotch adventurers, some Highlanders who had a worthy minister named Macleod, a few Moravians, and the Salzburgers who were by far the most industrious of the whole, with the worthy ministers of Ebenezer, green on Boltzius, I contracted an intimacy. Many praying people were in the congregation, which, with the consideration that so many charitable people in England had been stirred up to contribute to Georgia, and such faithful laborers as Wesley's and Ingram had been sent, gave me great hopes that, unpromising as the aspect at present might be, the colony might emerge in time out of its infant state. Some small advances Mr. Ingram had made towards converting the Indians who were at a small settlement about four miles from Savannah. He went and lived among them for a few months and began to compose an Indian grammar, but he was soon called away to England and the Indians, who were only some runaway creeks, were in a few years scattered or dead. Mr. Charles Wesley had chiefly acted as secretary to General Oglethorpe, but he soon also went to England to engage more laborers, and not long after, his brother John Wesley, 
having met with unworthy treatment both at Frederica and Georgia soon followed. All this I was apprised of, but think it most prudent not to repeat grievances. Through divine mercy I met with respectful treatment from magistrates, officers, and people. The first I visited now and then. The others, besides preaching twice a day and four times of a Lord's Day, I visited from house to house. It was plain to be seen that coming over was not so much out of choice as constraint, choosing rather to be poor in an unknown country abroad than beholden to relations or live among those who knew them in more affluent circumstances at home. Among some of these, the event, however, proved that the word took effectual root. I was really happy in my little foreign cure, and I could have cheerfully remained among them had I not been obliged to return to England to receive priests' orders and make a beginning towards laying a foundation to the orphan house. And thus the place I intended to hide myself in became through my being obliged to return for these purposes, a means of increasing that popularity which has already begun, but which by me was absolutely unforeseen and is absolutely undesigned. And another party says, During my stay there, the weather was most intensely hot, sometimes burning me almost through my shoes. Seeing others do it, who were as unable, I determined to endure myself to hardiness by lying constantly on the ground, which by use I found to be so far from being a hardship that afterwards it became so to lie on a bed. About the middle of August, having settled one that came with him a schoolmaster in a neighborhood village, and left his friend Mr. Habersham of Savannah, after an affectionate parting with his flock, he set out for Charleston in South Carolina. He paid his first visit to Commissary Garden, and at his entry preached the next Sunday morning and evening in a grand church resembling one of the new churches in London. The inhabitants seemed at first coming up to despise his youth, but their countenance were altered before worship was over. Mr. Garden thanked him most cordially and apprised him of the ill treatment Wesley had met with in Georgia and assured him that were the same arbitrary proceedings to commence against him, he would defend him with his life and fortune. He also said something about the colony of Georgia that much encouraged him, as if he thought his flourishing was not very far off, and at Charleston, was fifteen times bigger now than when he, Mr. Garden, first came there.